0: Hebrews chapter 13. You'll want it open in your lap. Sometime in the second century, an otherwise unknown author sought to explain how the church had survived the hundred years that it had. I want to read to you from the text of what's called the Epistle of of Diognetus. We don't know who he is. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit for contemporary ears. We Christians dwell in various countries, but everywhere we are pilgrims. We share life with others, but we endure life as exiles. We marry and we have children, but we don't kill our children as others do. We share our food, but we don't share our beds. We live in the flesh, but we're not fleshly. We obey the law. Indeed, we surpass the law in our ethics. We love everyone and it seems everyone hates us. We are poor, but we make many rich. We lack wealth, but live in abundance. We are maligned, but find joy and suffering. We're insulted, but respond with blessings. We do good, but are punished as evildoers. When mistreated, we look to heaven. Those who hate us can't even say why they do. But at the end, it will become clear that we, the church, are the soul of the world. This brilliant writer describes for us what it can look like to be a church in a hostile culture. It looks like this, we have to be a covenanted, committed community, fully devoted to one another, preferring one another, living life with one another and willing to die for one another. This is how the church survived for 2000 years of hostility through the Roman pagan persecutions, through the Islamic jihads against the Christian faith, the deprivations and risks, of foreign missions to every far-flung corner of the world, socialism in the 20th century and now the paganization of the U.S. under our watch. This is how we survive. We survive by being the real church. People who love each other, who are committed to one another, and who understand that when times get tough you must be all in. Put another way, If you're going to survive the disinformation, the endless flow of propaganda, the censorship, the deplatforming, the discrimination, the possible loss of your accreditation, your license, maybe even your job, the possible betrayal of your own children, you're going to have to make a full commitment to Jesus, and you're also going to have to make a full commitment to the people of Jesus, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the pillar and the ground of the truth, the church. For Christians in America, these times are tough and only the strong will survive. So I'm going to ask you this question. Are you all in? The biblical book of Hebrews was written to a community that was in some ways, similar to ours. Christians were facing an increasing hostility, both from pagan Rome and from their Jewish kin. Many Christians to whom this letter was written were tempted to compromise the worst thing a Christian can do or just walk away from the faith altogether. So the Hebrew writer wants to encourage them to make a commitment to Jesus and to his people. Chapter 10, verses 23, 4, and 5. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, first for Jesus, for he who promised is faithful and then for the church. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some were in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see that day approaching. The entire 13th chapter of Hebrews is really just a series of strategies for how to live as a minority community in a hostile majority community. There are a lot of strategies here. I want to say that tomorrow night, I'm going to deal with some strategies that I think are just maybe a little too complicated for a sermon. So I really want to invite you back to the East campus tomorrow night. We're going to talk about strategies for when your own children, begin to drift from the faith? What do you do at work when you're being bullied or pressured? How do you manage public education if or when it starts to turn against us? What do we do with the disinformation coming our way? So tomorrow night's a strategy session for living as minorities in a majority community. It will not be live streamed, so I'd like to make sure you know, come at 6.30 tomorrow night. But today and next Sunday, I just wanna look at some of the points that Hebrews 13 actually makes to help us stand firm. And I'm just gonna say it again, guys. For Christians in America, the times are getting tough, and only the strong will survive. So I'm gonna ask you the question Are you all in? Okay. Verse one Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. The first thing that the Hebrew writer states is that love is going to be our strength. But in a megachurch such as North Boulevard, it's very difficult for us to love one another when there are 3000 people scattered over 50 states. How do we do it? Well, in times past, you could have treated a small group ministry as an option or a luxury or a program. But I wanna make sure you understand that when times get tough, small groups are not a luxury. They are a necessity. You cannot possibly stand strong against the hostility we may face. If you have not committed to a spiritual family, and that's what a small group is. I want you to know North Boulevard does not need a small group ministry. I'm not promoting a ministry. Listen to me. North Boulevard doesn't need a small group ministry. You need the ministry. It's me who needs a spiritual family, not the church. In other words, if I don't make someone my spiritual family, I will be standing alone when times get tough. Let me illustrate. Over the course of the 20th century, socialist governments persecuted Christians all over Asia and Europe. Socialism understands that it's a totalizing worldview. Christianity is a totalizing worldview and they're opposed to each other. So socialists have persecuted Christians. In the Soviet Union, during the socialist persecutions, the Christian religion waned, that is, Christians started to disappear. In China, during the socialist persecutions, the Christian faith exploded in growth. Today, there are more than 10,000 baptisms every week in communist China. What's the difference? The difference is this. The Soviet Union built the church around the bishop, that the patriarch, that the preacher will say, and around the Sunday service. So, when the Soviet government went after the preacher and the Sunday service, the church collapsed. In China, the church has always been a small group-based church. Every church meets in somebody's house. So, the Chinese government has not been able to target the big preacher and the big Sunday gathering. And for that reason, every, every believer in China, has the complete DNA of a church embedded in their life. You scatter the churches, the Christians in China, and they just go plant more churches because they started with the insight that in order for us to stand strong, we must have a spiritual family. If you're going to survive what's coming, you have to get serious about small groups. You have to join a small group. You need your small group to become a spiritual family, not a meeting, not a pie tasting group, not a Super Bowl party. Those are great. I hope you taste pies and I hope you watch the Super Bowl. But at the end of the day, if your spiritual family, if your small group is not a spiritual family, you will not have the strength you require when times get tough. Our small groups ought to be the place where all these one another texts come true where we love one another, where we are devoted to one another, where we live in harmony with one another, where we accept one another, where we agree with one another, where we serve one another, where we bear with one another, where we show compassion to one another, where we forgive one another, where we submit to one another, where we teach one another, where we admonish one another, where we encourage one another, where we build up one another, where we confess to one another, where we pray for one another, where we carry the burdens of one another. That can't happen in a church of 3,000 people unless you find a spiritual family And that's your small group. So I'm just going to say this. In times past, you didn't have to join a small group. Or maybe your relationship to your small group was floppy, unconnected. You like the word floppy? I'm going to throw that out because I want you to remember that word. Your relationship to your small group was floppy. You might could have afforded that in times past. Maybe your small group could have been a pie tasting group. Maybe your small group could have been just a Bible study. Maybe your small group could have been just a place where occasionally we get together. I'm telling you when times get tough, that's not going to work. Instead, when times get tough, you have to go all in. It needs to be your spiritual family. Let me help you with that. I want to give you just a couple of strategies that will help your small group become more like a family. I'll just do this real quickly. By the way, these are probably really important for those of you who are small group leaders, not because I said them. I didn't, what I say is not important, and also I didn't make these up, so there's no credit here to me. But first of all, in your group, if all you're doing is studying the Bible and then pontificating on what you think this text meant in its original Greek or Roman context, you're losing. At the end of the day, the Bible's written for you. Apply it. So ask this question. When you meet tonight, ask this question of one another Is that working for you? And all of a sudden, The Bible will open up to you. Second, do ministry together once every six weeks or so. Get out there and practice it. We don't learn the Christian faith by watching YouTube videos. We learn it by practicing it, by doing it. Third, hang out with each other. Make your small group your spiritual family. You have a family even when you're not meeting with them. Let your group become your family. Take care of each other. You should be the front line of care when someone in your group is in need. Gather in same gender D groups. I'll give you just a quick illustration. Those of you who are men in your small group, every so often you need, you and a few other men need to go out and have breakfast and you need to talk a lot more openly than you can do in the big group. I don't have a porn addiction. If I did, I wouldn't tell my small group. You know why? Because my wife is sitting right next to me and we got other women in there. But if a couple of us men went out and someone said, David, tell me how are you doing? I'd probably tell them because now we're just together and we can talk openly as men. Same with you women. In other words, turn your group into a disciple making group, have an annual vacation or retreat together. My my group is getting ready to go on a retreat in a couple of weeks and just spend time together. We have groups here that cruise together, vacation together. They've been together for 20 years. They've raised their children together. And then finally let your group have children. Like if you're a family, families make babies Start planning now for the group that you're going to plant later. You don't have to do it every six weeks. You don't have to do it every year. But you ought to be thinking about how your group's going to start a new family one day. Just like Julie and I have two kids and each of them has gone and started a new family. We didn't call that division. We called it multiplication. I don't think I lost a daughter and I lost a son. I just felt like I gained a son-in-law and a daughter-in-law. Now our family's bigger. I'm just suggesting, guys, times are about to get tough for Christians And the full DNA of the church needs to be embedded in each believer. If you can imagine, I don't think this is going to happen. I'm not predicting this. So if you think I'm already carried away, I want to make sure you know this is not me being further carried away. But imagine a world where suddenly we were not allowed to meet in our building, where our Sunday services were shut down. I don't see that coming, but imagine that it were to come. Acts chapter 8 and verse 5 describes the early church in this language. It says, when the persecution broke out, they went everywhere preaching the word. That's what should happen if we ever get closed down. If we ever get closed down, there ought to be 3,000 members here, each of whom has the full DNA of the church in their body, and they go out and just plant 3,000 churches. You think we lost? We would have won. It would have been the greatest victory of our lives. So number one, love deeply, the Hebrew writer says, get small. Get small. Verse two, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by so doing some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Hospitality is necessary in a hostile culture because we need the encouragement and support of other people. No matter what you want to believe, ultimately your values come from the group with whom you associate, no matter what you want to believe. If you associate with other Christians, Christian values will make sense to you. If your life is lived largely among pagans, eventually the Christian narrative will not make sense to you. As Paul says, bad character corrupts good morals or as Skid says, you are, what does he say? (laughs) To survive the hostility headed our way, we need to open our homes to other Christians on a regular basis. This is how minority communities have always survived. When African-American communities were at, in the most of hostile environments, those of you who are black members, it was the fact that you had one another. When whites were mistreating you, even recently, you had that, you came home to one another. You were able to practice a hospitality that I think majority communities don't even understand. Well, now that the Christian faith is becoming a minority community, all of us need to cultivate hospitality. We need to learn to have people in our homes. We need to learn to share our values. We need to have our heroes, our language, our music, our art, our customs, our traditions, our holidays, our values. Our kids may go to public schools and we may go out and work in the world, but when we come home, we come home to our people. That's how we survive. And hospitality is imperative for that, deep hospitality. Now, I know that for many of us, This is actually a frightening point. Americans after all are very individualistic and we like our privacy. That's why we all build decks the back of our house and put privacy fence around them rather than as our ancestors did build porches on the front of the house and sit out and visit with the neighbors. But I want you to know without hospitality, we're toast. If we're not a real community, If we don't stand together, then individually, each of us will fall. So I've been thinking about how this plays out with our uh, living color ministry, our women who've put together living color ministry, who actually just recently published a book too on this. And I asked them, tell me me what each color hears when you say deep hospitality. This is the answer I got. Oranges say, yay, let's have a party. Uh, And then they faint from partying too hard. Golds say, well, if David says we have to do it, we have to do it. But I haven't cleaned the house. I haven't planned a meal. This is going to be so hard. Blues say, oh, this is so sweet. But if anybody gets their feelings hurt, I'm going to be depressed for three weeks. And greens, you poor greens. Greens say, oh, no, I've already had three conversations this year and I'm exhausted. (laughs) Not another one. Let me just suggest we have to overcome these barriers because at the end of the day, we stand united or we fall separately. So let me give you permission to do a few things. First, let me give you permission not to clean your house when guests are coming over. Just don't clean it. Let them get used to it. Tell them this is how we live. (laughs) Welcome to our world just don't worry about it anymore because that's stopping a lot of you. I don't have everything ready. We haven't mowed the lawn yet. We haven't trimmed the hedges in a couple of years. And now if they've got people coming over. We're all giving each other permission. Just quit worrying about it. Let them come over. Second, let them eat whatever you are going to eat. If you're going to eat leftovers or hot dogs, tell them, come on over and enjoy leftovers and hot dogs with us. You don't have to worry about it. Third, get okay with spontaneity, which is so hard for some of us. But try your best to get okay with spontaneity. And I'll just say, wear your gym shorts. Just tell them, I wear gym shorts. You're coming over, I'm in gym shorts. You got to be okay with that. What I'm suggesting is we learn to live lives where people get to know us so that we become the real people of God, authentic people of God, not just people who see each other on Sunday and say, everything's fine over and over and over again. If we're not an authentic community... We can't stand. And so my argument, times are getting tough for Christians in America, and only the strong are going to survive. So are you all in? Are you all in? Next verse, three. Continue to remember those in prison as, as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated, as if you yourselves were suffering. I'd like to spend a lot more time on this one. We'll probably come back to it some in two weeks. I'll just say a couple of things about it. Let me say this. First of all, we have our own story. We have our own music. We have our own news. We have our own media. We have our own heroes. We have our own past and we have our own future. We don't need pagans telling us what's important. We don't need pagans telling us what questions matter. And we don't need pagans telling us what the available answers are. We are the people of God. So, stop being led by what all the pagan media want you to think. Remind yourself they don't care about you. What they care about are ratings because with ratings you get money. That's what drives it. I'm not knocking them, I like a salary too. I'm just saying, as the people of God, stand with the people of God. Stand with the people of God. We're in this insane world where we're told that the most critical thing that could happen is some little small thing that offends a pagan somewhere. Meanwhile, the people of God are suffering worldwide. Imagine if I told you this. Imagine if this morning I stood up and said that every year 7,000 gays are killed by heterosexuals in this world. Do you think the news would report on that? They would report it if it was two. Two. I want you to imagine if 7,000 Muslims were martyred by the Methodist church every year. You can giggle at that because that's so ridiculous sounding. Would the media cover that? Of course they would. Imagine for a moment if 7,000 ethnic minorities were massacred every year by white conservatives. Would the media report on that? Of course they would. In 2015, a flight attendant on one of our airlines Refused to allow a Muslim woman to open her own Diet Coke can. But she noticed that the same flight attendant evidently let someone else open their Coke can. Everybody with me? It made headline news. The story did. In The Guardian, The New York Daily News, NBC News, The Toronto Sun, Los Angeles Times, Huffington Post, CNN, USA Today, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, BBC, MSNBC, ABC News, and scores of other outlets. That was the lead story in the United States of America. That same year, 7,000 Christians were murdered by Muslims. But you won't find that in the media. You know why? They're not interested in it. It's not of any interest to them. So if you're following around somebody else's story, you're going to miss your own story. And that's why the Hebrew writer says, hey, pay attention to your people. Your people have a great story. When your people are suffering, pay attention to it. Every 45 minutes on planet Earth, a Christian is killed for his or her faith. That matters to us. Get with the people of God. It's about to get difficult. And when it gets difficult, only the strong will survive. So I'm just want to make sure. Are you all in? Yes. Verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge adulterers and the sexually Right in the middle of the 20th century, Swiss theologian Emil Bruner made the statement, just as every person owes his creaturely existence to the fact that two individuals, a man and a woman, became one, so every person at the root of their existence is part of a community. This community is not the state. It is the family. Bruner had to make this statement because Marxist governments are generally opposed to the family because the family actually offers an alternative reality to the state. And so, statist countries tend to attack the family. And what we need to be honest about is that Satan is going to come after our families in hostile times like he's never done before. If you've been paying attention, our families are already under assault in America. The most painful experiences you're likely to have as members of the church are watching your own children rebel against you, rebel against Jesus, and then denounce him. And if you're thinking to yourself, that's happened to my family, and I'm so ashamed and embarrassed, can I say this to you? It's in all of our families now. It's not just yours. We we can stand together. I'm not diminishing what you're feeling. I'm saying you're safe here. Because we've all been there. Now we have to stand together on this. If it's happened to your son or your daughter or your sister or your brother or your niece or your nephew or your mother or your father, it's happened to all of us now because the evil one knows if I get your family, I got you. And so this is the time where we're going to have to take a strong and bold stand for our families. When the family collapses, the civilization collapses. You mark it down. It's as sure as the world. And so some of us will lose our children. Some of you have gone through the pain of a husband who abandoned you with saying all kinds of nonsense lies because that's what we have to do. We have to justify ourselves when we do some nonsense act. We have to justify ourselves. Or you've had wives who've run off. I read the other day more than 60% of American divorces are initiated by wives. Some of you have found people that you trusted in brothers or sisters who not only have abandoned the faith but now they don't like it they've turned against it now they bully you because of it we have to build the families that's our job but you have to be all in like we can't do it with you if you're not here so north boulevard has had strong family ministries for 70 next year it'll be 75 years our school of christian thought on November the thirteenth, Gary Chapman. Gary Chapman's an international per I can't even believe he's coming to North Boulevard. We've got him coming in person to North Boulevard. We're offering scholarships if you can't pay. But I just want to say this. If you can't even find a way to come to what North Boulevard's hosting to help your family. You're going to be in trouble. Now, North Boulevard does more things than any one person can do, so don't feel guilty if you can't come. But what I am saying is, we're trying to help your family. If you won't even join in the helping of your family, it's not likely to end well for you. North Boulevard has Sunshine School for our children, we have a discipleship tutorial for our school-age children, we have the best children's ministry in the world, we have the best youth ministry. In the world, our teenagers are on a retreat right now. That's why it feels a little hollow in this room. Those of you online, it feels a little hollow because all that energy is gone. It's just old people now. <laughs> we have a Growing Kids God's Way. We have a marriage ministry led by two like, really outstanding people over here. We've had divorce care. We've got a full-time counselor. We've got all sorts of things. Here's, let, me, let me paint a picture for you. I want you to imagine for a moment if we took all the things that a children's ministry does or all the things that a youth ministry does and we started offering all that for adults. What we want to do going forward is appoint a full-time adult or family minister. We don't even know what we're going to call it yet. But someone who does with adults the same thing that the youth ministers do for the youth and the children's ministers do for the children. So imagine... An, a family minister or an adult minister who comes in and takes our marriage ministry and pours gas on it, gives it more resources, gives, gives them whatever they need to make it really sore. Starting a singles ministry that catches all the singles, hundreds of singles. Starts maybe a divorce care ministry for people who are still going through and are wounded. A, a, a grieving ministry, we've had one that really just pours gasoline on it for those who are in our senior ministers our senior members ministry that just says, Hey, how can we help you find even more energy? Imagine someone who pulls all that together and says, this is going to be central to who we are because we've got to protect our families from the onslaught that the evil one's throwing at us. That's what we want to do. That's what we intend to do. Heighten the counseling ministry. What I can tell you is that once we make families a priority, we indemnify or vaccinate or inoculate ourselves against some of the fiery darts of the evil one because he knows if he can get my kids, wow, he'll destroy me. So I'm asking you to step up to the plate on families. When opportunities come your way, you can't take them all. You can't do everything at North Boulevard, so it's okay. But don't blow it off, don't let sports or athletics or academics or just laziness lead you to deny your family the resources that are here. Take advantage of them. And then last, I want to say this. I'm going to jump down to the end of chapter 13. There's a lot in between that we're going to come back to. Most of it, not all of it. But I just wanted to end with this one. Now, may the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will. So I don't want to sound too harsh here, but y'all know that North Boulevard is not Walmart. I know you know that. We're not a vendor. We're not a retailer. We're not a service organization. And we're not a club. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the body of Christ. We're the pillar and ground of the truth. We are the family of God. That means you can't look at us as the place where you pay $5 and we give you a service. Instead, the work of the church is to equip you to do the service. Our job is to help you develop the full DNA of a church inside of you so that you're fully capable of visiting the sick yourself. You're fully capable of ministering to the hurting yourself. You're fully capable of making disciples yourself. It's really not the elder's job to make all the disciples, to make all the visits, to check on all the sick people. It's not their job. It's your job. Their job is to equip you to do that. Ever so often, I hear a church member complain that North Boulevard wasn't there for you in your time of need. And I want to say to you, I think sometimes we actually do fail you in this, and it really hurts to hear it. It always does. But I want to say something else. We may have failed you in an even more deeper way by making you think that it was our job to come visit you in the first place and by not equipping you to understand, it's all of our job to be the church. We're not a service organization and you're not a customer. We're the family of God. It's incumbent on all of us to live faithful and to be committed to one another. That means North Boulevard is more like a coach and less like a retailer. I understand that in North America, because we have a consumerist mentality, it's now become sort of a cultural reflex for us. If I go to the church of Christ and they don't give me what I want, well then I go to the Baptist church. If I don't get it there, I go to the Experience church. When they make me mad, I'll go over to World Outreach or whatever it is. That's consumerism, that's not Christianity. Christianity is when I make a commitment to the family of God and then thick and thin we stand together. Christianity is when we understand that the church's job is to equip me to do the work of ministry. Paul actually says that in Ephesians chapter 4. Why is it that we have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers so they can do the work of the church? No, that's not what he says. The reason we have all these people is so that they can equip the people for the works of service so that each one of us can be doing our work. What it means is that we want to shift from thinking about my job as coming and paying and the church's job is to give me a service. We're a community or we can't stand. That means you always need to be looking for someone who's further along than you, who can disciple you. If you're newly married, go find somebody who has been married for 40 years and ask them, give me three months of mentoring. I'm telling you, it'll save you thousands of dollars of counseling. And it'll save me hours and hours of having to intervene when the train wreck happens. Because you went to somebody and said, will you mentor us? Always be looking for somebody who's further down the road than you are. It's called discipleship. And it's not an option. It's a command. And always be looking for someone who's not quite as far as you are. And then start discipling them. And if you think to yourself, but who am I? I'm only in the fifth grade. Find a fourth grader. There's plenty of fourth graders out there. How many times have I said this? My son learned to read when he was four years old. Don't take this wrong. But it's because his sister was in kindergarten and she was so excited about reading, she would come home and teach Jonathan how to read. So if you're four years old, what do you need in order to learn how to read? You just need a fifth grader, I mean, a first grader. You just need a five year old. All you need is a five year old and you can learn how to read. So look ahead of you and then look behind you. That's called making a commitment to church. That's how we become the people of God. Don't let yourself, don't let your family, don't let others doubt whether or not you are all in. I don't know how many times I've told you all this, probably enough that you could finish the story. But when I was a kid, Sunday night church was not an option for faithful people. But it was for my family for a little while. And I can remember asking daddy Every Sunday afternoon, there were seven of us. I'd say, Daddy, are we going to church tonight? And finally, I don't know what caught my dad, but somehow Daddy got serious about church. And he decided, you know, we're going to be serious. So I'd go to Daddy and I went to him. I'll never forget. I was a little kid. I said, Daddy, we're going to church tonight. And he'd had, he'd repented and come to Jesus and had some religious experience or something. Who knows? And he leans forward and he puts his hands on my face. He He pulls my face close to his. He says, son, you're going to church tonight. You're going to church next Sunday night. And You're going to church every Sunday night for the rest of your life. By the way, don't tell him we don't have Sunday night church in North Boulevard. <laughs> he doesn't know that. I, I got to finish this story because this is actually true. So uh, I'm in a small group tonight. We'll be—they're actually in my house tonight. So we're doing. Uh, and, uh, so we still have church. But we, when we moved to Overland Park, I don't know if y'all knew we did that. But we moved to Overland Park in the year uh, 2001. We got there, and Rachel was probably six years old or seven or something like that, and we were, they didn't have Sunday night service. They, they never had it. They always did small groups on Sunday nights. We did small groups for about a year. And one time, Rachel, she's six or seven years old, she comes to me, she says, Daddy, when are we going to start doing Sunday night church like we did in Murfreesboro? And I said, well, baby, this church doesn't have Sunday night services. A small group, that is a Sunday night church. She stared at me a second, and she said, Daddy, you know that ain't right. Laughter so there you go anyway y'all deal with that what i here's originally when i started that story there was a point and here it was you know what it was when my dad told me that i knew who i was i just knew okay now i know who i am we belong to the people of god that's who we are The question's over with, we've made our decision. I now belong to the people of God. What I'm saying to you is times are tough for Christians and only the strong are going to survive. You need to decide if you are all in. In the 1920s, Charlie Chaplin was a huge celebrity. By 1920, there were so many impersonators that for fun, various organizations would have Charlie Chaplin look-alike contests, which tells you I think how boring life was in the 1920s, but anyway they did this. People would show up from all over the country dressed like Charlie Chaplin. There is a legend that may be true, it's at least 100 years old, so the legend goes back to 1920, that on one occasion Charlie Chaplin himself showed up for a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest and he lost He was actually 27 out of 40 contestants. Elton Trueblood once remarked that the, quote, greatest single weakness of the contemporary church is that millions of supposed members are not really involved at all. And what's worse, they don't think it's strange that they're not. Or to put it this way, like Charlie Chaplin lookalikes, they're Christian lookalikes. But they're not the real thing. In his book, Insanity of Disobedience, Nick Ripkin, who's worked with persecuted people all over the world, says, I've identified five kinds of Christians. Y'all listen, I'm about done. By the way, there's a photograph. First, there are the census Christians. These are people who mark Christian on the U.S. census. Then there are the member Christians. These are people who identify with a particular congregation whether they go or not. They're members. They haven't been thrown out yet. Then there are the practicing Christians, those who participate in the ministries of a church. And then there are the committed Christians. These are the people who really are shaped by their church. But Ripken says, in my dealing with the persecuted church, there's always a fifth kind. And they are what he calls the hidden Christians. And he says, they are the Christians who have become so much like Jesus that when the persecution comes, they're the ones that everybody looks to. I think times are about to get tough for Christians in the U.S. I hope I'm wrong. But either way, you need to make your decision if you're all in or not. So I'm going to ask you to stand up. You want to stand? And I'm going to ask you, you and Jesus have a little talk. Are you all in?